Hey everyone, welcome to the Balanced Dietitian Podcast. I am your host, Marie-Pierre, and for all my English friends out there, you can call me Marie. I am a registered dietitian with a background in psychology. My passion in life is to help individuals heal their relationship with food and their bodies. If you're tired of dieting and tired of restriction, you are at the right place. I'm hoping that this podcast will help and support you as you heal your own relationship with food and your body and give you the tools, the resources, and the knowledge that you need to finally ditch the diets. Every week, you will be hearing from guest experts and myself on all things food, body, and mind. I am so happy that you're here and I cannot wait to support you on your journey. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. So today is actually super exciting because we're doing something new. We're having the Balance Practice team here on the podcast to do a book review. So everybody from the practice is here, almost everybody. Most of us are here. Um, So before we get into today's podcast episode, just wanted to do a quick intro. So we all read a book called Wellness Culture by Christy Harrison. And we're going to be doing a quick review with you together, just a few takeaways, what we've learned from the book. And we hope that this is going to be really, really helpful as a conversation around like what is wellness culture and how does it actually impact us and especially in eating disorder care. But before we get started into talking about the book, maybe we can all say hi, let us know like who we are, what we do at the practice and just say a little hello. Hi, I'll jump in first. So I'm Jasna. I'm one of the dietitians at The Balanced Practice. I see folks with disordered eating, eating disorders, pregnancy, postpartum, and diabetes. Hey, everybody. I'm Kelly Tsiburzma. I'm a registered psychotherapist, and I work with folks who are working on their relationship with food, their bodies, and movement. Um, My name is Julie Burnett. I'm a registered social worker with The Balanced Practice, and I uh, also specialize in eating disorder care. Uh, and working with women who are survivors of domestic violence. My name is Monique Robinson. I'm a registered psychotherapist. I speak French and English. I'm also working with eating disorders, um, life transitions, um, LGBTQ plus folk, um, also neurodivergent folk as well. And I am Krista Bolger. I am a registered psychotherapist in the qualifying stage, but I'm one of the newer additions to the therapist team. Um, Similar to everyone else, I work with individuals who feel like they have body image issues or disordered eating patterns. And more than anything, I guess I'm just excited to be a part of this new team. I am Haley Danziger-Kramer. Are we saying last names? I think everyone else did, so I will. I have two last names. I am clinical admin, so I do a whole bunch of things around here. Um, don't even really know where to start, but it's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So you might've already spoken to me. I do a lot of, um, initial connection calls with clients and answering the phones around here and just helping everything run smoothly behind the scenes. And I'm excited to be here today. Yay. And then we'll have Katie who's going to join us mid podcast. So you may hear her voice out of nowhere. She's not here for the intro, but she's a registered dietitian at the balance practice as well. And works with folks with eating disorder, disordered eating. And she really is enjoying loving with folks who are neurodivergence and healing their relationship with food. And I'm your host, Marie-Pierre, and I'm super pumped to get started today. So we're going to start with chapter one, which is a big chapter. Um, I think Julie, you were responsible for reading this chapter. And this chapter is wellness culture and diet culture. So do you want to tell us maybe a little bit like your takeaways from this chapter? Yeah. So I'm, I was reading this chapter and I was like, I feel like 
I just want everybody to read the book. Uh, and I think that's the kind of the consensus amongst the team and how we were chatting about it before we started recording. Um, but I thought what was really interesting is she kind of starts the book off by talking about her own um, vulnerability to being drawn into wellness culture and that like there's this deep innate desire amongst most people to be well right because there's this idea of if I'm not well then I'm dying because the opposite of wellness is illness um, and that's associated maybe to disability and you know it's interesting to think about for me because I I read another book called Brilliant Imperfection by Eli Clare about like disability studies um, and he grapples in the book with like the problems with cure and like the problems around like wanting to rid ourselves of disease and illness and things like that and I thought that the that idea and this idea around like how people can be really vulnerable to the wellness industry were really complementary to one another and then it goes on to talk about some of the other requirements that wellness culture has for us, which I thought was really interesting. It's a really good point, Julie, just in terms of that, if I can chime in just about the, like you were discussing how just the, the openness with her vulnerability in terms of, of, you know, how, how complex it is. And it, you know, I was, as I was reading it, it really felt non-shamey. Like there was a lot of the shame that was kind of, it just didn't feel like it was um, luxury in any way. So I don't know if that resonates with you as well. Yeah, yeah. I super appreciated that um, tone, I guess, that she brought to what she was talking about, which I loved. Well, even this idea of like, if you are drawn to wellness culture and you have engaged in these practices or you have done this, like, it makes sense. Like, we get it. Like, we're all kind of like victim to the system in one way. So I, I thought I thought that was a really cool thing. It really set the stage for like a really empathic response to, to being trapped in this like problematic relationship with this industry. And I really intentionally use the word industry um, <laughs> because like it keeps us really trapped. And like, I think she picked such a great title for the book to begin with. Um, and then she also goes on to like call out a bunch of the common traits of wellness industry things like juice cleanses um, and that it's like affecting the way that we see our animals food as well. And, and I was reflecting, I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest. And I thought that was such an astute observation because I have many loved ones who are so concerned about the food that they give their pets um, even more so than they themselves, like some people, it's like a bigger priority for them for their pets to eat well than it is for them. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating now that it's like kind of been brought to the surface for me uh, to think about. And then she also talks about like the exercise regime that's kind of involved in being well and like what's kind of expected of people who are prioritizing their wellness. And there's as I was reflecting on it, I was thinking about like the like righteousness of being well um, mm -hmm. and all of the ableist stuff that kind of comes to the surface when we really start thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything that the, the part that I found funny and I, I was so happy that you were reading this part is like the tech bro dieting. <laughs> 
yeah. like the yeah. bro nutrition. I was like, oh my God, I cannot yeah. wait to hear your thoughts. Yeah. The masculinity in it was great. Um, <laughs> like it's just, yeah, I, I was, I listened to a, another podcast in, in my free time. That's about like investing in finance and stuff. And there's one person that I really like their content for the most part, but he has this one advertisement thing where he's like, I really like my nutrition to be dialed in. And I'm like, like what does that even mean? Like, what does that even mean? Um, to have it dialed in. And like when she started talking about like a tech bro approach to, mm-hmm. to wellness, I couldn't help but like recall that like advertisement that I've heard that it just sounds so bizarre when you work in this in our side of things where we're trying to unpack these things with people and change the culture around food and exercise. Um, you just can't unsee it, you know? Yeah. I don't remember if that was the, um, the chapter where they were talking about um, like the Soylent and then also it's just repurposed in terms of let's market it so that uh, um, it, it kind of plays into the toxic masculinity in the sense that I think the author was saying, well, you know, the, the tech bros won't want to walk with a slim fast, but they'll do a Soylent and it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of the chapter you were, you were talking about, Julie, in that interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly the one. And I'm curious before we move on to the next chapter. So we talk about diet culture a lot, like on this podcast, or, and I think with all of us, with our clients, and when we start thinking about wellness culture and like, everybody can chime into this, like, what is the difference between wellness culture and diet culture is it the same thing like what are our thoughts between the two that's such a good question Marie-Pierre and I think um I think Christy the author kind of talks about like in some ways and I really agree with this it really resonated with me that wellness culture is kind of just like diet culture 2.0 it's just like the new rebrand that Sometimes um, maybe we have done some work to get a little bit better at spotting the diet culture. And so it's just this new kind of sneaky way of of basically doing diet culture. I I agree. And I think wellness culture is almost a little bit more dangerous, I think, at this point, because I think it's become more mainstream to know that, you know, like diets don't work. Let's not crash diet. Let's not do something extreme for 30 days. But this idea instead of like, oh, well, this is a lifestyle is what's coming out more and more from wellness culture. And it's really then hard to know, like, is this just another sneaky diet or is this actually different? Mm -hmm. Is it a diet you just never quit? You know, because a lot of the fad diets or crash diets had like a succinct period of time that you had to do it, whereas wellness culture it has lifelong customers instead of just a six-week customer, which Mm -hmm. I think is, you know, not by accident. A hundred percent. I saw a photo on the Instagram. That's like a piece of poop and then a piece of poop with glitter. I'm like, to me, that's diet culture and wellness culture. It's like, it's the same thing. It's still poop. There's just glitter on it, but same, same. Yeah. And to to add on to the whole piece of uh, wellness culture being a little bit more dangerous, just like there were some additional things that she mentioned that she put into really good words that I had never really thought about or not like not really thought about in this way, like just the way that wellness culture is just I guess, as we're saying, like diet culture 2.0 in terms of, um, you know, the way that it promotes 
even more mistrust in everybody, like in, in institutions as a whole, you know, the whole, you know, mistrust in, I don't know who it is, like conventional medicine, really, or like the man, I don't know, but like it really, there's just a whole, there's this whole message of you can't trust what everybody else is telling you. It's very fear-based and fear-mongering. And it's like, mm-hmm. don't trust them, trust me, I have the solution. And this, and, and it's, it's really like a marketing strategy, like mm-hmm. nothing else will work except for what I'm selling you. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay. So we're going to move on to chapter number two. Um, this one was actually my chapter to read and it's clean and natural. And I'm super pumped. I got this chapter because it talked a lot about supplements, which I learned a lot about. So my chapter was divided basically in like three big parts. So there was the part about that piece of like clean and natural and like clean eating and clean beauty and all these pieces, chemical free. And like, anyways, all, all those languages. And then we had the piece on supplements. And then we had like cultural appropriation of like our wellness practices. So for me, that some of the takeaways that I got, like the piece with clean and natural, again, it's just kind of that, like that piece where it's, we're, we're transitioning from diet culture to this piece of like wellness and cleanness and being natural. And it kind of like what Kelly, you said, like, it's like just more sneaky ways to attach value to food. And also it's not just food anymore. It's like the way the makeup we wear, the clothes we buy, the cleaning products we have at home too. And there's this idea that like, if it's not clean, like it's a threat and it's toxic. Um, But some, some things that she talked a lot about was also this idea that we need to be wealthy in order to like be well, because a lot of these products and a lot of these trends are actually really fucking expensive. (laughs) So it also like attaches more value to like, if you're well and clean, it also embodies like beauty and wealth. So there's like even more moral value attached to being like clean and natural. Um, So I thought that was super interesting. And I highlighted something that I wrote mic drop next to it. So I just want to read this like little part of the book because I thought it was so, so good. So she wrote a beauty ideal that punishes women and femmes for aging serves to uphold patriarchy by detracting from the power and wisdom that naturally tends to accrue with age, undercutting people's self-esteem and damaging true well-being. The effect compounds the, fur- the further away you get from conventional beauty standards. Like, I feel like this is just it. It's just like, yeah, it's just like taking us more and more away from our own like wisdom and just like being able to be. Um, so yeah, I thought that was like super, super interesting the way that she... Um, the way that she wrote, worded that. So she talked a lot about like anti-aging in this chapter as well, that like anti-aging is becoming part of wellness culture. And like, we're trying to do all of these things to not age where like, I mean, we got to age. It's just part of our life. And then she talked about wellness as being like Instagrammable. So what looks best on social media becomes part of the wellness trend, which again, she, she links to um, like wealth, like having these like big, beautiful white kitchen with like big windows and all of these big things that, um, are more attractive on social media that we then now believe and we aspire to be like that. Yeah. She call it aspirational marketing. And I thought that was such a neat way to put it. And I was like, Oh, it's sneaky. It's fucking sneaky, man. And that's a really good point. And I, I remember in one part of the book, she talks about how wellness culture preys on anxiety. And I think that's a really kind of good link there in the sense that, you know, uh, we, we hear a lot, oh, when everything's cluttered or everything feels out of control, um, you know, like, and if you, if the space kind of matches your, your inner world, then, um, you know, let's go minimalist, um, all of those things. Cool. But it also takes a lot of privilege to be able to afford those things. Yeah. 
I think that was the part of this chapter that I liked the most was just like how she dissected all of the privilege points that you need to be able to have a life that looks well, right? And yeah, like it's all actually like an aesthetic and a look. And I like, I think about um, even just like a yoga studio that I wanted to go to when I was in university because I like just loved yoga and was like this is really the only thing I want to do um so why don't I just go to a studio and it was like triple the price than going to like a big box gym uh that was like even more toxic in the wellness culture department but it was like impossible to make that decision because it wasn't financially accessible yeah yeah. And then the second part that she talked a lot about, and I'll do this really fast um, because it's supplements. And there was like a lot of studies around supplements and like regulation. Okay. I'm a dietitian by training. I had no freaking idea how like little regulated supplements were in the States and like how like all the lobbying over the last, I don't know, hundreds of years happened. Uh, but supplements in the States are not regulated. And like, I thought what was really cool that she brought up is this idea of like wanting to be natural and like things that are good for us. Whereas like when we look at things that like supplements that are not regulated, it actually gets further (laughs) from actually being good for us. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. The way that she kind of laid out like the supplement industry on its own is it is a whole other machine. It's a whole other monster. Um, And seeing also the impact of like COVID with the supplement industry, like how many people are trying now to like heal themselves naturally with all of these like supplements where like the supplements are not natural and they're not regulated and you're probably just having like really expensive pee as she like stated. So I thought that was super interesting to talk about the supplements. And she really went through like that timeline of like the regulatory bodies in the States. Um, though in Canada, we are a little bit more regulated than the States, but I just don't know um, yeah, how much more, but even things like, sorry, I'm getting like really excited about these supplements, like the things that they're allowed to say on the like supplement bottles, like the, the impacts that it does So they're not allowed to wait. So it's structure versus function. Like they're not allowed to say that things are in it if it's not, but they're allowed to say like what it could potentially do, like support or improve, like any types of function without, again, being regulated, like mind blown, mind blown. Like it's just all lies. I wonder if we should have an episode on the podcast just about what the regulations are in Canada to like compare and contrast. Cause I find- Like sometimes Canada's a little bit better, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we have like no issue. No. Yeah. And I find that that is like such a fun thing to look at because we assume that we're identical to the States, but typically we've moved the needle just a hair forward, but not nearly by as much as what needs to happen. Yeah. Guys, if you're listening and you want to hear about supplements in Canada, let us know. And then we'll do a podcast episode on that. Easy peasy. Okay. And then I'm going to take like 15 seconds just to say the last part of, of the, the second chapter before we go, because I think it's also important to name is cultural appropriation of different wellness practices um, and how basically in like Western culture, we kind of like pick and choose which one we want, like exactly what you're saying, like Julie, with the yoga Um, that the yoga we have here is not actual yoga, but we kind of pick and choose what we want from it. And then we commercialize it for profit. Um, And it's just really interesting, again, the way that she talks about these different practices. Um, And the ones that were interesting to me even more is like the psychedelics, because they start using it for eating disorder treatment, um, which is also really interesting as like we work with eating disorder to kind of understand how people are using it. And if we are using it well or not. 
So I think that's, let's move to chapter three. So chapter three is a determinants of health or just determinants. Manik, I think that one's yours. It was. Um, it was an interesting one to read because um, it, it was divided in, in a few um, different sections here. But um, the one that really spoke to me, well, there's two of them that really spoke to me um, just in terms of the 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 importance of, of highlighting these. So when we think about social determinants of health, um, essentially it's uh, different things. Uh, there, I think they, she talked about five different ones, um, things like education access, quality, um, healthcare access, um, economic stability, um, the environment you're in, um, and also like social community contexts. And the interesting thing is that um, uh, apparently it's like 70% of our health outcomes are actually those. Um, and a lot of times uh, with wellness culture, what it does is that it flips that and it becomes the, what you eat, um, you, how you exercise, that's what's gonna make you, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes here, like healthy. Um, and it's just such an interesting point when we talk about, because uh, there's a lot of overlap with discrimination, um, people who live in food deserts, for example, air pollution, all of those things are things that are, a lot of it is out of our control, like just as an individual. Um, and again, wellness culture, um, like I said, preys on the anxiety, on anxiety and and um, and feelings like that. And uh, sometimes it could it maybe feels easier to be oh well if I do this yoga pose and I drink this tea I'll be okay. And I think that's kind of where and we're not saying that yoga is bad or this tea is bad. It's the, more of the link of a, if I do this then that's going to take this kind of feeling away. That's where it gets a little bit more murky. Um, and what I thought was really interesting too, and I don't know if um, if people are familiar with, um, um, she talks about like the the secret and manifesting and all of those things. And it was interesting because I actually remember my mom um, watching that that movie back in like 2006 when it came out. Um, and what I found very interesting is that. Um, as um, the author talked about in the book, is that there's an over-responsibility of things that are outside of kind of our control. So the whole thing is that you attract what you emit. So if you're emitting bad vibes or if you're emitting bad thoughts in the universe, the bad stuff, and I'm putting it again in quotes, the bad stuff is something that like you attract it. So you attract what you emit. Um, and I find that can be a very, very kind of murky um, place to be, especially if we're working with... Um, uh, folks with higher levels of anxiety um, and eating disorders. So I don't know if anyone has any thoughts about that. And just when, you know, like when, when we talk about these things. I have thoughts. Yes. <laughs> I can jump in. Let's hear it, um, Kelly. Yeah. So I actually, I put a sticky note next to like the pitfalls of manifesting that section, just because I wanted to be able to come back to it, to read about it more. Um, I'm definitely like a victim of the law of attraction. And so like I have just solidarity for all the folks out there listening who um, have dealt with that. And I think, you know, tying this into what you were saying initially too about the kind of like the percent breakdown of the things that are in our control and not in our control. Diet culture and wellness culture um, kind of preys upon our desire for control. So we all want to feel like things are within our control and it has a way of kind of selling to us that it is, even though the things that we maybe have control over are such a small percentage of our overall wellness and well-being, right? But it, it, it uses that and then it amplifies shame as well, where it's like, if, if 
things aren't turning out perfectly and beautifully and you don't have the wellness aesthetic, um, then that is therefore your fault. And it, it doesn't serve people to believe that because the role of shame that that then causes, but in many ways it does serve people to believe that because it gives the illusion of control and that that can change. And because we live in such a hyper individual, like individualistic society, and we've lost so many, such a sense of like the community and like the social determinants of health, that idea just spreads so rampantly. Absolutely. And there was, uh, she talks about um, a meme that was going, that was spreading around for a while. And it, um, I actually wrote it down just because I, I, I audibly chuckled when I was reading it, where it's that maybe you manifested it, maybe it's white privilege. Um, just in terms of when we talk, yeah, I laughed. I was like, woo. Um, just in terms of um, just how, how complex um, some of the, some the things again, that like feel like they could be in our control. Um you know, if you if you're living in a food desert, right, if, if going to the grocery store is three buses, and, um, you know, you don't have a car, it makes it harder, right? And it doesn't really fit into that aesthetic piece. So it, it's challenging, for sure. Um, but it was a very interesting chapter um, to read. We talked a little bit more at the end there, too, about you know, the role of trauma, and just some of the, the links with, um, uh, people who have experienced um, adverse childhood experiences, so um, and links to health. So she talks a lot about um, how, again, somatic work can be really helpful, um, just because of how trauma does affect the body. But it's more of like an adjunct than it's not just the body. It's really the the connection of you know mind, body, spirit, kind of all of all of the above, not just one thing. The last thing I was going to add with that is just like, I know for me, um, like learning that piece of like, you don't get to control everything. And even if you did all the things, it may not happen that way or whatever. Like, even if you ate all the right food, you may not look that way. And like, for me in my own recovery, I remember like that being such a big, like aha moment. Like it almost felt like I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, even if I did all the things perfectly, like it also provides a sense of relief. I find like even reading through that, that you can be like, yeah, no, like it's not just about the action and the behaviors that you do. Like there are some things that are out of our control and learning to be comfortable with that discomfort actually becomes almost like a superpower. All right, well, let's move on to our next chapter. Chapter four, we're, we're talking about myths and disinformation. Jasna, I think this was your chapter. Yeah, so um, so the author kind of differentiates a little bit between misinformation as, you know, people with good intentions spreading information that may or may not be true or may or may not have any evidence behind it. And disinformation, which is um, people like purposefully and knowingly spreading information that is not true. Um, and she kind of talks about both of these in a variety of different circumstances. And she kind of starts off the chapter with talking about her own experience in the early 2000s when the internet was still young, looking for solutions to her own health issues. And even back then, there was some very fringy stuff, usually focused on kind of, you know, what Monique was saying, that, that idea that like, if we change our diet, we can change all these things in our life that we may or may not actually have control over. 
And she contrasted it to nowadays in kind of the, the 2020s when, um, you know, in the past you had to look really hard to find that fringy information. Nowadays, the internet is so sophisticated, so complex. There's really, really sophisticated algorithms that basically put um, more of what we're looking for in front of us. So the more we're searching for this information, the more we find the information, the more we find the information, the more we find the information. We can get ourselves down some really kind of dangerous rabbit holes. And um, she talks about like a lot of what drives this is the collecting and selling of our personal data. And I, and this part really freaked me out. And I think I sort of knew this anyways, but just reading about it, I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to turn off my computer and I'm not going to answer the phone. And it was the same week that I was reading this that I was getting all these telemarketers and scams calling me. And I was like, oh my God, they know my information. And so she was talking about, you know, in the past, advertisers would just put out a blanket advertisement and everybody would get advertised diapers regardless of what life stage you're in. Whereas now when you're researching stuff about maybe pregnancy, you know, the, the social media app that we're using or whatever we're using, the search engine remembers that information. And then nine months later starts trying to advertise us diapers. And then so much time after that starts trying to advertise us other stuff. And uh, that's a lot of what's driving kind of these algorithms. And she talks about um, that there's been efforts in the past, in the early days of the internet, kind of in the 90s, when organizations like the World Health Organization tried to step in and create credible uh, domains like .health domains or things like that to try to help the public to filter out all of this stuff. What is credible information? What's not credible information? What should we believe? But unfortunately, a lot of stakeholders um, stopped this from happening. And there were acts put in place that actually prevent um, tech companies from being liable or being able to be sued when people post and print online um, false information. And this is very separate from like um, traditional media sources. So like uh, news on TV or like print newspapers do um they are liable. They can be sued when people print false information. Um, and I don't know that everyone um, kind of knows that as a fact. And then when we think about sort of um, how things are portrayed online, it's also very different than in kind of like real time, real world, where on, on sort of social media, if you're a credible professional or you're um, an influencer who is kind of just talking from your own perspective, it's all portrayed as very even, very like flat structure, where it's more about like how many likes do you have, how many subscribers do you have, more than like what your actual credentials are. And even if we think that we can kind of filter that out and decide for ourselves what's true and what's not true, what we should believe and what we should not believe, this was the part that um, the author kind of freaked me out even more, was that the more we get exposed to it, the more likely we are to believe it, even if we know it wasn't true at the beginning. Um, and my takeaway from that was really, you know, we often talk about this with our eating disorder clients. If using an app or using um, some kind of media is making you not feel good or is really triggering, maybe we actually need to set limitations on that. Maybe we need to remove notifications or maybe we need to put a pause on some of our engagement with some of this, um, some of the social media that we're using if it's leading us down rabbit holes that aren't feeling so good for us. Um, she also talked about um, sort of Facebook's um, 
sort of specifically having algorithms um, that were setting up teen girls and still are setting up teen girls to continue down really eating disorder prone rabbit holes um, based on um, searches that they were doing and looking for really, you know, maybe benign or seemingly benign words like healthy eating increasingly gets you down really eating disorder oriented rabbit holes. And this made me really upset um, being an eating disorder dietitian and a mom as well. Um, that I, I feel that we should have more protection for, for children, for teens, for all vulnerable populations. And I think unfortunately, a lot of the populations that get marginalized and kind of um, targeted with these kind of algorithms, and her author talks about this more and more, are already marginalized populations. Mm-hmm. And she talks about in the States that there's this real belief that um, nobody should regulate the internet. And unfortunately, a lot of our social media comes from, from the States. And so that's just kind of what happens. And that it's just the individual's responsibility to know who to trust, what to trust. And I think that this is really, it's a systemic problem, right? And um, we need a systemic solution. Um, Yes, there's lots of stuff we can do as individuals to protect ourselves and maybe limit our usage, but we actually do need probably a systemic change. And then um, she uses this quote that I wrote down. I loved it. I wanted to like maybe make it my like signature on my emails. I loved it so much. She talked about um, we are often seeking um, sort of social connection and that feeling of belonging when we're using social media. And it's sort of like this synthetic version of that social connection. She likens it to diet food. She says it temporarily takes the edge off of our hunger for connection but it's really never satisfying. And I thought that really kind of described, um, it's kind of like you get this short hit of like feeling good, feeling connected, feeling recognized, feeling like we belong to something important. And then it goes away. And the only way that you feel like you can get it back is by going in and getting another hit of that. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, um, you know, now that we're kind of in this weird post-pandemic world where we're trying to re-navigate all of this, um, I've actually had clients say that re-engaging with some of their real world connections has really helped with their body image because they're seeing more diverse bodies, lots of different types of bodies. And it puts things into perspective. It's not just this like curated, narrow view of bodies that's on the internet anymore. Um, And that's actually been super healing for them. And I wondered if anyone else has had experiences like that or any thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, even just not being a head, like we just see each other as like heads and like no bodies. And you're like, oh my God, people have like a bunch of different bodies that we didn't get to see for like two years. No, I think that chapter was super, super interesting. The only thing I I wanted just to add, just ED super specific, like the study that came out in 2021, that was like kind of checking out, like, why was there such an increase in eating disorder cases over the pandemic and social media being in the top three reasons why. And it's like everything that you, that, well, Chrissy talked about and that you've talked about regarding this chapter, this idea that like, when we're getting all of this information that's not regulated from sources that are not regulated, but also with the algorithm, it typically is the white, thin, white people or fit people that tend to do really well, get the most follows, get the most like. And subconsciously, we also attach that to like, ooh, this is belonging. Like if I'm fit, if I'm fit, if I'm like have the most amount of followers, like we kind of strive to want to look that way, believing that that's what it's going to take. So it's really interesting and like sad. 
Yeah. And it keeps, again, preying on the anxiety, right? I remember I've had some clients talk about some of their, what they've seen on TikTok. This was like maybe 2021 during the pandemic. And they would report some TikToks going, um, what is your post-quarantine body going to look like if we start now? Uh, And it was just like so many layers there. But again, it's that sense that in that there's a lot of fear about what's going on in the world and the unknown. So again, it kind of targets that and goes, okay, well, what can you do to maybe feel like there's some control there and plays on the shame. So I do remember having some conversations with clients about just kind of those pieces and the pieces of, you know, oh, well, you know, I should be doing more. I should be more productive. Those pieces as well. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's move on to our next chapter, the anti-vax rabbit hole. Krista, what were your thoughts? That was mine, but it's also kind of similar to what we're just talking about Jasmine's chapter two, very similar in the themes of like social media and the algorithms that really just like direct people into these roadmaps. And then they're like stuck in this wormhole of just specifically for my chapter, just like anti-vax everything. And somehow there, Chrissy was talking about how this chapter is more anecdotal. She brought in lots of like case conceptualizations kind of about different people who started on their wellness journey um similar to what Haley was saying at the beginning when she was you know challenging the idea of wellness culture versus diet culture and that like people are just trying to like stick it to big pharma and use more holistic approaches and all that kind of pieces and then people were saying that they started on this wellness journey and then all of a sudden they start looking into additional like herbal remedies for a cold that then now started going into anti-vax stuff and then that's all they're seeing and they're just immersed in this culture and it was very insidious in the sense that like no one stepped into this realm purposefully but social media and those algorithms kind of forced them there before they even realized it so it was pretty interesting to get these little like anecdotal pieces of how quickly these um people, families, moms, daughters, anyone found themselves as like anti-vax when that wasn't their ideal stance at the very beginning. Um, One part I thought was really interesting was I have a history with working in neurodivergent populations, like specifically autism, and they brought in how the anti-vax movement was really tied to the autism diagnosis and how it like truly affected that community and that like spoke to me because I I had like a visceral response hearing that because I saw autism as like this disease based on a on a drug that was offered um so it was kind of interesting I'm really glad that like she elucidated what happened and how that happened and like the key players who really started pushing that message to kind of clarify it um but I thought it was really really interesting Kind of similar to Justin too, like one of the takeaways I got from that piece was um, the discussion again, it's it's American based, so take it with a grain of salt, but there's currently a lawsuit going on right now with Instagram and a teenager who's trying to sue Instagram for feeding into their um, eating disorder by pushing pro ED content to teens. Mm -hmm. So it's like one of the first times it's going to public court, I think, from what I was reading. So I think that was really interesting. And I'm glad that like, you know, there's voices to it now, there's movement and there's awareness. And I think that's our key that's going to like change the way things are going. I hope. Hopefully, knock on wood. Yeah. 
It's going to change. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Kelly, it's your chapter. I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of this dubious diagnosis and spurious cures. <laughs> I think you did a great job. Thank you. So, okay. My takeaway from this chapter might be a little bit different to everyone else's. Um, and I also think it, I did read the whole book. So it was hard to isolate just to this chapter. So I have a couple yeah. takeaways. From this chapter specifically, I actually, I couldn't help but look at it through the lens of a psychotherapist. And one of the things that really stood out to me was when she was speaking about um, like kind of why people might find themselves uh, working with like wellness professionals was around the placebo effect of the role of empathy. And one thing I appreciate from the book in as a total is the level of nuance um, and how gray it is. There's not a lot, if maybe any, like black and white in this book, which in one, it, it can be activating to the nervous system, right? Because we want that answer. We want to know what's right, what's wrong, what's safe, what's not safe. And this book doesn't necessarily specifically give you that because it gives you the kind of the critical thinking and the nuance, which I love and ties into what you were saying earlier, um, MP, about just like radical acceptance of being okay with the not knowing and the not having full control. So in the nuance, she kind of questions the the responsibility of the kind of conventional medical system in terms of the way we offer client care. And there is a lot of problems with our medical system and there's a lot of weight bias and a lot of other um, areas of oppression in care, let alone like doctor's appointments. Like you go in and it's like, you maybe get five or 10 minutes and you really have to advocate for yourself. And it, it's such a systemic problem. And again, with the nuance she brings in that it doesn't mean doctors are bad people. Like this is a huge like systemic issues where they're probably burnt out and they're doing their best to operate in the system. But because of that, um, there can be some confusion with the results people obtain from other forms of care and some of these like dubious diagnoses and spurious cures, right? Where it's hard to know, is, is this actually helping or is it just that you are actually getting human connection? And why that stood out to me as a psychotherapist is we have research that that suggests and says the number one indicator of a successful outcome in the therapy setting and in therapy treatment is the therapeutic alliance. So it doesn't so much matter what we do as therapists, like there are different modalities for different things, but at the, if you could pick just one thing, it is the relationship and the alliance. So that made so much sense to me that this also plays in with what happens when we're seeking care for our physical health as well. Um, and then with that, it, it just as like a healthcare provider reminded me of the absolute importance of the safe and effective use of ourselves. Because what is often happening in these situations is healthcare providers are, are kind of getting like their own biases coming through in terms of what they might believe and one maybe specific like diagnosis. Like it, it this chapter kind of talks through some of the common umbrella like diagnoses I'm saying that in quotations because they're not real conditions but things like adrenal fatigue and leaky gut syndrome and chronic candida which are maybe not actually medical terms um but in the wellness kind of scene they're they're recognized um and they're very confusing because there is a lot of kind of truth and partial truths in in them that becomes very complicated and confusing 
But if it's, you know, something like we have this preconceived belief that this is something many people are struggling with, and then we give them a questionnaire that's pretty vague, and they say yes, we can't just assume that that's what they're dealing with. We need to still be client-centered and curious and thorough to make sure we're not just kind of typecasting everyone into one thing and prescribing and re-prescribing the same treatment over and over and over again. That's so interesting. The one part that I like that she was naming too is that like the reason that like wellness culture exists is because our current healthcare system has a lot of holes. Like there is a lot of issues with our current healthcare system, especially for like marginalized communities that are not really seen in the healthcare system. So it makes sense that we look for like these alternatives. But I like, again, like that non-shame, like it's not that doctors are bad or like not caring or like intentionally wanting to cause any type of harm. It's just the way the system is set up. And I would say the same thing to the the alternative providers as well, where, you know, on an individual level, I imagine that they're, this is also the therapist in me coming up, that like <laughs> unconditional positive regard. Of, they've probably also been harmed by the systems that they're now um, kind of working against and working yeah. to find alternatives for. And, and the intention is probably really, really good. But as professionals, we need to be looking at our impact over mm-hmm. our intention. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I would assume most healthcare providers, like they want to do good. They want to help their clients. They, they, they care and they want to, it's just, yeah, the way that we do. So let's move on to chapter seven, scams, schemes, and snake oil. So this, this touches back on a lot of things that we've already discussed. Like the disinformation piece is really huge yeah. here because this is really referring to, you know, people who are quite intentionally looking out to scam people for, um, for money, it's like a huge marketing thing. The well, the wellness industry is huge. It's a huge money maker. And, you know, she touches on a lot, Christy in the book touches on a lot of reasons like why this is, you know, the wellness industry, as we've already kind of touched on, you know, the product claims for a lot of supplements and wellness products don't really have to be proven. You know, you can make, you can make some claims, you know, and with like a little asterisk maybe um, on a bottle, uh, but you you can really make a lot of claims saying like, you know, may lead to this or that, may lead to improved whatever. Um, and, and it doesn't have to have any real evidence to back that up. Um, and, and it's not, you know, it's not really about the message necessarily that's on that bottle, but really who the message is being delivered by, because a lot of what we've touched on with influencers and the the power of the media um, and the power of people on Instagram, you know, the power of these people who um, have a really large following, uh, they have a lot of influence, you know, which, which is why we call them influencers. They have a great deal of influence over the people who are following them. So if they're saying something has changed their life and has, you know, improved their well-being and done all of these things for them, um, that has a lot of power to drive sales mm-hmm. with uh, the people who are following them. But not just the sales, it also, you know, a lot of what we were talking about earlier with the fear-mongering piece, um, it can promote a lot of anxiety um, you know, like for example, if you're, if you're saying that this product helped you so much, um, it can really drive a lot of anxiety. Like if, if you don't use this product, you know, 
are, are then are you not going to be well? Can you get well without that product? Um, and then when we're promoting mistrust in in more conventional medicine, it's you know shunning those types of things. So it, you know there was there was this example that she gave, which really blew my mind, honestly, of this one person in Australia who had this extremely elaborate scam. Um, and this is you know this is an extreme example, but this person, um, she had she had said that she had. I believe it was terminal brain cancer and that she had opted not to do any conventional treatments, like no chemo, nothing at all. But instead she did only uh, holistic alternative therapies. I believe it, I don't know, juice cleansing, whatever it was, it was, it was like, it was something completely, you know, unscientifically proven and just, um, you know, th this was what she was promoting to all of her followers on Instagram. She had a huge following. And in the end, it turned and she built a huge business on this huge, like selling things and all of that. And in the end, it just turned out that she never even had cancer to begin with. She made it up entirely. Um, and, and she was promoting this lifestyle to tons of people, like people, other people who had cancer and all kinds of other health conditions. And it's just, it blows my mind how incredibly harmful that is. Um, and just, you know, thinking of like, you know, the, 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 the evidence behind um, what actually happens when people who have diseases like cancer and they don't, they opt not to, not to use, um, you know, conventional therapies and instead go the alternative route, whatever that may be. Um, they actually have a much higher likelihood of, of dying from those diseases. And it's just like, it's, it's so crazy to me how, or sorry, it, it's just like, it, it's really it, how harmful that it can be, how harmful that message is and how, if people are listening to this and believing it, you know, the impact that that can have on so many people's lives. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, yeah it's just the, the takeaway from the chapter is just really how harmful it actually can be and just how, mm -hmm. how discerning we need to be of the media that we consume. Yeah. And like, exactly like you said, like, the impact of the harm is so big, like, and it's so hard because like folks at that oftentimes like are very vulnerable. And it always makes me think of like the three, how do I say like the three, three big motivator of change is when it's something attacks are like a sense of safety. So if we feel unsafe, like example, if I'm, yeah, I'm unwell or I have cancer, I feel unsafe, therefore more motivated to like, want to find something. If I, my, my sense of belonging is, is not there. And, or if I feel very uncomfortable and it seems, or like the discomfort. So it seems like diet culture kind of like, or wellness culture kind of attacks all, all fronts of, of those like motivators to change and like seek out different things. Also, like when I, in this chapter, they talk about like, um, multi-level marketing and I'm like, feeling so ashamed. I a hundred percent was part of one 10 years ago <laughs> and selling these like freaking products. And I'm like, Oh my God, cringe moments. What was I doing? But yeah. Oh, the MLM piece, you know, just reading and it, it just was so, it was so relatable. I think, you know, the way they talk about it and how people, how people are in that industry, like the messages yeah. that you get on Facebook from people you knew 10 years ago being like, Hey yeah. girl, what's up? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's so preying on women, you know, just like, oh, you can work from home. You, you, yeah. girl, you have a family. Great. I got you. This is yeah. a way you can make lots of money. And we have trips, we have cars. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, it's such it's a wild. scam. Like the amount of people that make money is like, 
you know, minuscule and it's, it's only the people at the very top, right? The way, the way the whole thing is structured. So our last chapter is from wellness to well-being and Katie, you had that chapter to read. I did. And it's really more of a summary chapter. So I will keep this fairly brief because I don't want to be repetitive. I'm sure I think a lot of the points have been covered. Um, So it's really, she kind of brings everything together um, and offers some kind of highlights and key points around how we're able to shift the focus to well-being versus wellness culture. Um, and so she speaks to like different approaches that could make a difference in supporting well-being for all, both from a societal level and then individually. Um, so in terms of the societal approaches, she kind of had four different areas, again, which I think all of them have been touched on. So she talks about ending healthism or this idea that health is a responsibility of the individual and like the blaming that can happen um, uh, towards individuals for their own health challenges. Um, And also about addressing social determinants of health. Um, So really looking at implementing policies to address challenges like poverty, increasing access to quality care, those kinds of things. Um, She talks a bit about like kind of what ties into what Kelly was speaking to about really um, putting more emphasis on mental well-being and a lot of that she tied into like training for doctors, public health professionals around that mental health support piece. Um, And for me, I also think about like I would want to add here, um, I have the conversation so often with clients about, um, you know, if they've had experiences that have been very weight centric in their care, that I truly, you know, I really believe that a big part of the issue um, is bigger picture and the training that, you know, healthcare professionals get, um, that it is often very weight centric. And so I think for a lot of providers, they're not intending to do any harm. They're just relying on the training and education they have and what they know and what they've been told they're supposed to follow in terms of like standards of care. Um, And so really, you know, I wish that was another piece of the puzzle there is also wanting to um, provide more education at the outset about weight inclusive care, the harms of weight stigma, those kinds of things. Um, She also talks about regulating big tech. So this really ties into what Jasna was talking about, about kind of regulating social media platforms more, um, having like almost like a duty of care for users. And she kind of makes a statement um, about talking about how like just, you know, a lot of times the the challenge, the counter argument to that can be around freedom of speech. Um, And so a lot of the ideas she's sort of proposing or or mentioning are more um, acknowledging that people are free to say something, but it doesn't mean the tech companies need to like give them a megaphone. Um, So it's sort of freedom of speech without freedom of reach is how she phrases it. Um, and trying to limit that some of those kind of the content that gets amplified in algorithms can really make some of those messages spread virally and are we able to contain those messages more um, so then they're not reaching so many folks and having such a, a widespread impact. She also talks about just as Haley was just speaking um, to kind of regulating the supplement industry. Um, And so those are the sort of the main societal approaches she speaks to. And then on the individual level, um, she talks about, which we've already named a number of times, sort of sifting through the the misinformation that is out there um, and being more of a a critical consumer of science, um, having that more critical eye when we're seeing information coming out. Um, And then she talks about kind of unplugging and logging off and really, again, driving home this idea of like, 
solitude being different from isolation and that it can be really supportive to have time to ourselves um, without all these other inputs externally to be able to kind of process and reflect and understand our thoughts and feelings. Um, but that we also do need that social connection and really are we able to start seeking that out more outside of social media um, and kind of having those positive ties, um, at developing those relationships outside of what we do online. She talks about sort of setting boundaries with others and um, really cultivating that sense of purpose outside of wellness culture. Uh, and just the healing work that I think here at CBP, I, you know, I, I really feel we're really a part of that piece of the puzzle and are able to support folks in that. So she does name sort of both within kind of healthcare professionals that might be part of your team and doing that work. And then also like friends, family, other people that are really supportive in your lives. Um, so I thought it was just a really nice like summary and overview of some of the key points and things that um, could be takeaways or maybe um, things for folks to reflect on that they might be able to then implement from what they've read in the in the previous chapters. Mm, I love that so much. It's, a, it's such a good way to summarize. And I love that she's separated from like, what's our responsibility and like, what's not our responsibility? Because I find in both, in both ways, like one, we can definitely over like put too much emphasis on like the individual and like what you need to do to make it better. But then sometimes I find we go the other way. We're like, it's only the system and you can do nothing. And it feels like very disempowering. And you're like, well, I guess it just sucks. And I don't know what to do. So I really love that she kind of went both ways and like providing some like tools on each side. There was, um, there was one suggestion. I think it might've actually been elsewhere in the book that she made another kind of like individual suggestion that really spoke to me personally. The idea that when we do come across misinformation or disinformation, and we feel like there's so much shock value, we want to share it with others so that they can also kind of see that this is untrue, that that's actually harmful because it's re-amplifying and re out that message all over again. And I think that Often we do it with the best intentions and that um, that might also be something that we can consider changing as a behavior. That's so interesting. So as we wrapped up this book, I'm curious if we just want to go around, maybe a final thought, a big takeaway from it, what you're taking from the book, if you like it, if you didn't like it, as we finish off this podcast episode. I'll jump in. I loved it. I actually think... Um, Doing book reviews as a group, like really, it got me excited to like do more reading. The more I read, the more I want to read. And uh, Christy Harrison just has such a lovely way of writing. She ties together personal stories that are just so captivating and engaging that you can really empathize with. And also the data and, you know, seeing all of the pieces to the puzzle in a way that helps us think critically um, and, and kind of also really Really, just just as kind of Katie and Matthew Powell were talking about, really kind of um, shows us the difference between that individual responsibility and the bigger picture, um, kind of more systemic responsibility in a way that you come away from the book feeling empowered and not just like, like everything sucks, right? I was, it was a really lovely read. Yeah, I agree with everything you're, that you're saying. And I also found it really validating for a lot of things that I've personally experienced and heard, you know, our clients talk about and heard lots of, you know, people I know talking about just the impact that this has on literally everybody, you know, and it seeps in in really sneaky ways. And we don't always, you know, we're not always aware of it. And it just is really bringing more awareness to it of things that we don't even really think to question a lot of the time, which I think is just such an important conversation to have. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I know Julie talked about this at the beginning, but that the some of the nuance pieces I think are were so important um, in the sense that it wasn't this or that, all or nothing. And um, you know, in terms of like cognitive distortions, the all or nothing one shows up a lot, and a lot of us too. Like it's a really hard one to kind of to grapple. And I find that there there was a really nice kind of um, way of just explaining and and again with more of that curiosity piece right so it wasn't this is bad this is good we're not saying that doing yoga is bad it's more of the let's be curious about the why that's what I really again it wasn't you know if you in terms of like the having you know having juice in the morning lovely but it's not it's not about that it's about kind of what's the underneath piece I think that um is more important there. Yeah, and I'll echo, like I also enjoyed it. Um, and I just, I find her writing style very approachable. Like it's such an easy read for me. It like things flowed quite smoothly, I found. So I found it really um, easy to remain engaged with even in the spots where there were like some stats or like kind of some more like sciencey pieces. Like she just, that her style of writing I find is very um, easy to follow and, and very engaging and I always appreciate when there are like those stories woven in those kind of examples. I find that is often what really sticks with me um, afterward is kind of hearing those other sort of viewpoints or um, being able to kind of tie that into some of the things that we maybe learn about or know as professionals. So um, I really, I really enjoyed it as well. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And the first thing that comes to my mind is like, I feel so fucking fortunate to work with all of you guys. <laughs> like, I just love that we're all like so into it and it's just like so good. And we're able to have these conversations. Um, but I also really, really enjoyed the book. Like her first book, Anti-Diet really changed my practice, the way that I approach things. I think it really gave me language for how I felt. And I feel very similarly with this book where there's a lot of things I'm like, ah, oh, this kind of feels icky. And then you're like, oh, this is why. <laughs> and like, it gives you, I think a lot of like understanding of it. Um, and I feel like it's a book that will bring a lot of conversations just like we had today. And before pressing record, we're like, we could probably do a podcast on each chapter separately because the way that she writes, I think like really allows us to like think further and like see like how it impacts us. And like, I think we all have lived experience around a multitude of things regarding this book. So I thought it was a really, really cool book. And it was really cool to share with the team and to share with all of you guys on the podcast too. 